Hello and welcome to the Classical Music Pod. In today's episode, we chat to composer Eleanor Alberga. We discuss 17th century quail song and its links to the National Basketball Association. Plus, a brief history of Justin Bieber. Nightmarish sound comes from a truck-mounted sonic gun developed by the Chinese military. It causes nausea and vomiting with prolonged exposure and is apparently being used to harass Indian soldiers on the line of actual control, which is the border between the two countries. It was also reported that a smaller, portable version of the gun was used to dispel protesters in Hong Kong earlier this year, although they surely could have done that playing anything by Camille Sanson. Oh, poor Camille. There's a geopolitical hue to news this week. On Wednesday, the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny called on the European Union to impose a travel ban on Valery Gergiev. In an interview with the German newspaper Bild, Navalny singled out the chief conductor of the Munich Philharmonic as a propagandist and apologist for Russian President Vladimir Putin. Mm, Gergiev has been a controversial figure since his appointment as chief conductor of the LSO 13 years ago now. In 2013, the human rights activist Peter Tatchell slipped the Barbican security and delivered a short speech attacking his support for Putin's civil rights record. Mm. The month before, members of the gay rights group Queer Nation staged a protest at the opening night of Yevgei Onyegin at the Met, which Gergiev conducted, following his suggestion that the imprisoned members of Pussy Riot were merely out to make money. However, this week's episode is the first time a prominent politician has called for sanctions to be imposed on Gergiev. Navalny has been recovering in Berlin after an assassination attempt he accuses Putin of orchestrating. His attack on Gergiev has provoked comparisons with those on Shostakovich and Richard Strauss, both of whom held public positions in oppressive regimes that were seen to contradict their private convictions. Those inclined to defend Gergiev might point to an interview he gave with a Russian paper in which he said, As director of the theatre, I have only one criterion ability, mm. talent. Uh, we pose the question, can you hold such views while supporting a homophobic president? Mm. It's difficult to predict whether Navalny's introduction will have any real impact on Gergiev's position. Germany has said it will agree with EU partners in coming days what action to take after the global chemicals watchdog confirmed Navalny was poisoned by Novichok. We understand that sanctions could be as extreme as an enforced Sanson symphony cycle with the Munich Philharmonic. Second burn on Camille. (laughs) 
<laughs> Hit the news beat, Tim. Singer-songwriter Nick Cave has co-written an opera Ooh. with composer Nicholas Lenz. Litanies, which is set for release in December, joins a growing list of operatic experiments by former pop singers. Other entries include Rufus Wainwright's Prima Donna, Elvis Costello's The Secret Arias, Dr. D by Blurred's Damon Albarn, and Kanye West's Nebuchadnezzar. Several classical musicians have been included in the Queen's birthday honours this week. Oboist Nicholas Daniel, composer Sally Beamish, and tenor John Mark Ainsley picked up OBEs, whilst violinist Jennifer Pike, who told him off for asking a silly question last season, gets an MBE. We assume ours got lost in the post. Kevin Bacon has revealed he is a huge fan of Irish music and has written a song about a giant squid on the Boron. Is the song about a squid on a Boron, or has it been written on the Boron? I don't know, very good thing. The Czech health minister, Roman Primula, has shut down all sporting and cultural events in the country following a huge Covid spike. Primula seems to be taking a harder stance than his predecessor, Adam Wojciech, who resigned in September and presumably green-lighted the farewell Corona street party held in central Prague at the beginning of July. Mm. And finally, the German conductor and violinist Christoph Konch has released an album of Mozart's complete violin concertos played on the composer's original violin. Conch notes how Mozart was fond of writing in the instrument's upper tessitura and coloratura registers, which apparently is where his violin sounds particularly beautiful. I'm playing all the right notes, but not necessarily in the right order. In case you missed it last week, we've introduced a new quizzical element to the podcast in which we play all the right notes from a famous melody just in the wrong order. Have a listen to the following, see if you can work out what it is, and we'll reveal the answer at the end of the episode. All the right notes in all the wrong places. Can you guess what song it is? Go on then. Oh, man, I'm really sorry. I haven't had time to write anything this week. I've been totally snowed under trying to retrain her something viable. Mm, should we fire her up again? Don't you think people can tell? No, no, it's foolproof. Welcome to the What's the printout? Romantic ballet music, but it's also about the production of plastic cheese. Mm, not feeling it. Try again. Baroque violin sonata, but it's also 1960s basketball trivia. Yeah, sounds like the one. Bieber. Bieber. All the kids in 2009 are talking about it. But also all the fun-loving courtiers of Count Karl von Lichtenstein Castlecorn in the city of Kromeritz in Moravia. I sense this isn't Justin we're talking about. Baby, 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 no. Today's subject is Heinrich Bieber and his Sonata Representiva, a piece for solo violin supported by a continuo section. Continuo, please. Tell me about the continuo. 
The other two guys from this 17th century equivalent to a jazz trio are usually on theorbo, the outsized proto-guitar, and the cello. Ah, clearly these Barocas hadn't heard of the sexiest instrument in history, the double bass. The sonata is in nine movements, with each of the middle ones representing animals. It sounds like this. Tell me, Sam, which animals make it into this zoological zonata? Cats, hens, a frog and a quail. A quail? Yep, in real life they sound like this. And in the piece they sound like this. Is that really that close? It's a representation, not dictation, shall we say. In fact, it's not even Bieber's representation. Bieber, a plagiarist ornithologist. No, he cited his source, a fella called Kircher. Mm, sounds like Sean Connery casting a spell on a woman. Kircher! Kircher wrote down all these natural sounds as an attempt to organise the natural world, just as others in the Enlightenment were processing gravity or ascertaining whether clairvoyance was inversely correlated to height. Little shout-out to Johannes Kepler there. And Bieber organised the natural world musically for... For his patron Karl, who loved representative pieces. Hmm. Sounds almost like the programmaticism of the 19th century romantics. You're right that the central idea is similar, even if Bieber's execution is more literal than poetic. For instance, there's a section where the musketeers march, which doesn't really fit with the rest of the natural theme. Mm. So he valued flair ahead of artistic coherence, then? You're right, and basically it meant he was an outlier. No one took up his representative baton directly, and it's not until a hundred years later that similar theories start to appear in the programmaticism of Beethoven, Berlioz and the bad boys of the 19th century. Which is why, here, I'd like to talk about basketball. Seven foot one non-mythical giant, Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain, remains the only basketball player to score over 100 points in a professional game. Mm, a feat he achieved before starring in a Bruce Lee movie, supposedly sleeping with 20,000 women, or supporting the political career of tricky dicky Richard Nixon. He's a mixed bag, Goliath. I mention because in that 100-point game, he adopted an unusual technique. The granny shot. The granny shot? When he took his penalty shots, his free throws, he did so not by shooting normally from a high bent elbow pose as per the rest of the world, but by putting the ball between his knees and scooping up, a technique he borrowed from a rival called Rick Barry. And was that more effective? Much more. So presumably he kept doing it for the rest of his career? Well, this is where it gets weird. Despite having a tangibly better result when shooting underarm, he ignored the scoreboard empiricism that this was a good idea and he went back to his old less successful method. The granny shot just didn't capture the zeitgeist, and the technique didn't spread any further, with almost no one other than his old rival Barry using it in the NBA's history. OK, so how are you bringing this back round to Bieber and his sonata representiva? Bieber's fantastical representative ideas might have pleased his patron, 
but their lack of coherence, I did mention the musketeers, didn't I, didn't chime with the times. It didn't shape the fashion in the way that a generation later, J.S. Bach's violin sonatas helped form the foundation of the canonical history of music. I suppose the canon is just the ideas that caught on. Yeah, and that's one way to look at it as a history of fashions. And that doesn't make the canon a crime. It's just not an exhaustive list of all the good ideas. Mm, Not all good ideas catch on. No, even if they're obviously better like Wilt Chamberlain's granny shot. Mm. And the concert is one idea that did catch on, but now we're being forced to re-examine that idea and try something different. And that's exactly what I talked to Kathy Boys from the Brighton Early Music Festival about. They're putting together an entirely digital festival this year, and I'm really glad that they're featuring Bieber as they try something different. He seems the perfect fit for it, as he too was an experimenter, someone who tried something a little bit out of the box. You've gone for a V-ticketing model, sort of volunteer tickets where people are able to watch it, it's not behind a paywall, and then if they want to, they're able to contribute some cash. How did you arrive at that as the best fit for you guys as, a, as an institution? I mean, this has been one of the huge challenges for people this year, um, you know, deciding how to present online content and make it clear to audiences that, you know, this is not free. You know, this Mm -hmm. is not necessarily something that should and can be available completely free. In terms of REMPF, we were keen Obviously, you know, we're keen for for audiences to to appreciate our content and be prepared to to pay for content. But equally, we want to use this as an opportunity to grow our audience amongst Mm. um, people who've maybe not come across the festival before. So we thought about various models, whether we would simply um, appeal for donations, whether we would, um, as some festivals are now doing, and it seems to be working, actually put up a paywall and say you can only watch this if you bought a ticket we felt that a sort of model somewhere in between those two things was was the right choice for us so that we can grow our audience but also get some sort of contribution to the costs of, of making all these films and and mean that the festival can survive into the future so we will have three ways of people um donating to um to watch the films um but as you say anyone will be able to watch them regardless they're not paywalled um so we're doing these voluntary tickets where people can essentially make a formalized donation up front and we felt that that would be potentially quite appealing for our existing audience to feel that it was done that they'd simply they bought a pass or a ticket for a voluntary ticket for the Um, events they wanted to see and that they felt that the donation part was done and they could just settle down and relax and and watch it. We're also going to be giving people easy ways to donate whilst the films are live so there'll be a just giving page um, and we're also going to try out text giving as a an easy way for people to just grab their phone and donate while, while they're watching the film. Could you tell us a little bit about the birds, bugs and other beasts concert which will feature the Bieber we spoke about today yeah of course this is a family program so for um preschool primary school children that's been put together by a really exciting young ensemble spiritato and they worked with a puppeteer Dallas Taylor to create a program around that Bieber piece which as you probably discussed earlier has lots of different animals and birds that are represented in the music and Delith has made puppets from recycled materials of several of the animals that feature in, in the Bieber piece. And they're going to be 
dancing around and generally having <laughs> lots of fun uh, alongside the music. Fab. That'd be really fun. And it includes friend of the pod, Sergio, on Theorbo. So watch out for that. What are you most looking forward to seeing? Oh, I suppose, have you seen Have you seen everything already? Or what are you most looking forward to people seeing? It's, well, all of it is going to be fantastic, <laughs> hopefully. But, um, and I certainly haven't seen it all already because we are, we're making films. It's more than just a, a, a filmed concert. So although I've seen quite a number of the filming with the musicians, with the ensembles that we've done, that's going to be intercut with some film of the natural world and some newly created animations in some cases, interviews with the artists and, and all that sort of thing. So it will hopefully feel very much more, more than just a filmed concert. Hey, well, best of luck to you and the rest of the festival. It starts on the 23rd of October. You can hear the Bieber we spoke about earlier on the 24th. And we'll be wrapping up on the 1st of November. That's exactly right. And then each film will be available to watch for a week after the premiere date. So um, some of those later events will be online right up until the 8th of November. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Cathy. Composer fact file, Heinrich Bieber. Born August 1664 in Reichenberg, Bohemia. Little is known of his education, but it is suspected he was raised by Jesuits. He was a violin virtuoso famous across Austro-Germany. He was discovered on YouTube when his Canadian mother posted clips of him performing. Early musicologist Charles Burney called him the greatest 17th century violin composer. Usher signed him to his record label when he was just 13 years old. He snuck off from his employer, Bishop Carl II, to work for the Archbishop of Salzburg without saying he was quitting. In 2016, he became the second most followed celebrity on Twitter, with 90.2 million followers. In his rosary sonatas, written about the crucifixion, Bieber requires the soloist to cross strings below the bridge and in the peg box, creating a cross on the instrument itself. His song Sorry has been purchased and streamed over two billion times. Bieber had 11 children, and his sons Carl and Anton played as violinists in Salzburg. He died in 1704 in Petersfriedhof. Justin Bieber is still only 26 years old. You got to pick a pocket or two. The first movement of Anton Bruckner's Fifth Symphony written from 1875 to 76. Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes, written in 2002. You got to pick a pocket or two. What you're hearing is the British composer Eleanor Alberger's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which is being performed on Sunday the 18th of October as part of the digital edition of Music at Morling Festival.
I caught up with Eleanor and her violinist husband, Tom Bose, to talk about the piece, as well as her Jamaican upbringing and her affectionately named childhood dog, Prince Andrew. We started off by fact-checking a skeleton biography that I had compiled of Eleanor, and she was very gracious in correcting a few of my mistakes. For the sake of any listeners who don't know you or your work, Eleanor, I've compiled a sort of Eleanor Alberger skeleton biography that I was hoping I could read to you and give you the chance to correct or add anything salient that I might have missed. Does that sound all right? Sure. sure. That sounds brilliant to me, yeah. I I feel like um, Eamon Andrews in This Is Your Life. (laughs) 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 So you're born 1949. Kingston, Jamaica, the only child in a music-loving, I think, middle-class family, would we say? Yeah. And you decided you wanted to be a pianist age five. You composed your first piece of music in honour of your golden retriever, Prince Andrew. Oh, you do your research, <laughs> Brilliant. As a teenager, you accompanied ballet classes as a sort of side hustle, then in 1970, you won an ABRSM scholarship to study piano and singing at the Royal Academy in London. Yes. In 1978, you started accompanying... I, I actually won it for piano, but but oh, I, piano. I studied singing as well. You yeah. singing as well, there we go. Then in 78, you started accompanying for London Contemporary Dance Theatre, where you later became music director and for whom you began writing commissions, and that's sort of where the composing really kicked off. Yeah. Um, and then sort of highlights since then, 1994, you commissioned to write by the Dahl Foundation to write an opera of Snow White based on Dahl's, the poem from Roald Dahl's Revolting Rhymes, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, Are you calling it an opera? What What shall I call this? Well, that's actually quite <laughs> a good uh, question. That's a good question. Um, well, it's for narration and orchestra. Mm. Narration and orchestra. There we go. At that mo- at, I'm right in saying at that point in your life, you're mostly self-taught, but then it wasn't until 2001 when you were award- awarded a Nesta Fellowship that you- that enabled you to seek consulting lessons from composers like Julian Anderson and Harry Birtwistle and people like that and that's when you started studying as it were well I'd had when I was at the academy um I had some sneaky uh (laughs) composition with my (laughs) harmony teacher right Richard Stoker I took him he was a composer Mm. and I took him one or two little snippets of things I'd written so it started from there but okay I think you've said to me that even at that time you were composing, but you weren't actually telling yourself that you were composing. It's a kind of, it's a, it is a slightly Yes, it was. It wasn't until of... the dance thing started that um, I started thinking, well, I do love this composition, Lark. And... Hmm. I, I suppose the next big highlight, I suppose we could call it, is in 2015 when you wrote the Arise Athena for The Last Night of the Proms. That's a fairly big commission. Yes, that I and did then, do an opera two thousand and nine. Yes, which was called Letters of a Love Betrayed. That was it, Gosh, and yeah. that was at the um, that premiered at 
at, at the Royal Opera House, Linbury. Yeah, it's a lovely little. I love the Linbury. Um, I've only been there a couple of times, but it's such a wonderful little. Um, well, it's big, I suppose. But it's intimate. Yeah, it's intimate. Yeah, it's really special. And then coming up to the year 2020, this year your second violin concerto, Narcissus, was premiered by you, Tom, yeah. in Poland. And that was immediately before the lockdown. We yes. got we got back, and a week later, shut down. It really was. It was like climbing back through a door that was closing, like yeah. sort of three tons of metal on top of. <laughs> we didn't even see it, you know. Yeah, God, you must have been relieved that you got that in before everything happened. Then. So happy. Yeah. The other things that I wouldn't mind if you mentioned was that I I won a PHF Paul Hamlin Foundation award in 2000 and was that 2019 mm. and uh well was was offered a fellowship at the royal academy of music which of course nobody can go but um i've been invited to be a fellow of the royal academy of music so that's that will happen in the future then that's yeah great so that's a that's a very bare bones <laughs> summary of your life and career we touched there on Snow White from 1944, which is getting a digital run out in its chamber version. It's part of the music at Mauling Festival in Kent on the 18th. Yeah. I hadn't heard it before, but I listened to it over the weekend. What I really loved about it is how you absolutely refused to patronise the young... I guess it's a young target audience, isn't it? But you just you didn't patronise them in that... It's, yes, it's theatrical, it's entertaining, and it's orchestration structurally it's really complex i mean i think i'm right in saying there's a 12 tone fugue in one of the dances yeah which dance is that actually it's the jockey's the dance. jockey dance yeah yeah i looked at it as being a family piece so that you know adults should enjoy it as well as children mm. uh, i don't believe in in condescending to children i think you know they should be brought up yeah so that was a very deliberate decision then right from the start yes racehorse jockeys all of them There's a series of dances that emerge at points throughout the piece. As we said, the jockey's dance. There's also the stepmother's dance, the mirror's dance, Snow White's dance. You've said before that you're a great advocate for dance and music teaching in early years education. Was dance something that you had access to, did a lot as a child yourself? Uh, not, not really so much. Uh, just that... In Jamaica at that sort of time when I was growing up, quite a few middle-class parents would introduce their children, especially the girls, to doing ballet from a young age. And and I I was part of that. I had ballet classes from a, a very early age mm. as well, music lessons. And that was just part of the culture. I was lucky enough that uh, my parents, and especially my mother, was particularly into that, into the arts for everyone and for children. So, Do you think that's what 
drew you to London Contemporary Dance Theatre originally, having had that exposure as a child? That was a sheer accident. There were, uh, now let me think about this. I think there were two dance companies, two modern dance companies in Jamaica when I was growing up. And I actually went in and took a couple of classes with with one of them and really enjoyed it. So modern dance was not foreign to me completely, but there was a plethora of ballet classes. And when I was looking for work for the first time in the UK, I thought, well, I've played for ballet classes as a teenager, why don't I try that? So I just immediately went into playing for ballet classes. And someone just happened to mention to me several years later that there was this uh, school called The Place where they were doing modern dance and you didn't have to count everything in four bar phrases. Um, <laughs> and it really appealed to me. So that was a sheer accident. And then I, I sort of, I, I think I just turned up there and said, you know, are there any vacancies for people to play for classes? And that's how I started. Yeah, wow. So maybe you that's... should tell Timmy a little bit about what it was like meeting, you know, Robert Cohan. And... Oh, yes, it's been a major life-changing experience for me working with London Contemporary Dance Theatre. And of course, Robert Cohan was the co-founder of that. And was is still he's 95 now and he, he's incredibly inspirational and a wonderful person as well um, so I was very lucky to work with him for several years he taught the company class every single day and by this time I'd realized that playing from music for dance classes was a, a sort of bit of a it didn't work because things were going by too fast, like mileposts on a motorway, and you had to come up with something to play very quickly. So that's how I started improvising in, in the later ballet classes. And by the time I got to the place and playing for LCDT, I used to just improvise everything. And uh, he was just so inspiring and I could do anything. <laughs> I wanted if I felt it suited the movement. So it was was a very expansive experience for me artistically. It sounds like quite a unique position to be in in that you have utter artistic license in a way that you just would not have as a repetiteur for an opera company, for, for example. Is, no. is that, yeah. You have to from the music that you're given and you have to um, obey what what the director wants and that sort of thing. With this, um, I knew exactly what Bob wanted from the movement uh, because he was so clear at explaining everything and he would set this whole what's called floor work or all these floor work exercises which went on for 15-20 minutes and I would just play nonstop as they went from one exercise to the next, changing tempo, changing the sort of dynamic of the of the music to, to go with the with the movement, etc. So it it was just just a wonderful experience. Yeah, just to because I, I wasn't around, I never saw this. I've seen Eleanor work with dance dancers more recently, 
But what I understand was that by the time you've been doing this for some while, a class would literally start with the dancers there and Bob would say, and, and Eleanor would start playing and they'd go into what apparently, you know, was an improvised sort of thing. Of course, it was very structured as well. But it sounds, it sounds quite miraculous to me. Well, I, I think what it did also was to teach the dancers how to listen. And the dancers in LCDT were really sharp on that mm. because they had to, to listen enough to know where the first beat was when they started the next exercise. And I had to be clear enough for them. So it was a collaboration in a way. What I find intriguing is that, from what I understand, you're quite rigorous in your compositional approach. It feels very structured and not as though it would have come from an improvisation. So is it the case that when you started composing properly, you, you weren't coming at it from an improvisatory standpoint as you would be if you were accompanying a dance class? No, it's a different thing for me. Uh, composition, I think, started off. There were possibly more improvisational uh, influences at the beginning and there's more sort of free going ahead with the ideas that just came. But as I progressed and got more experience as a composer, it got more and more structured. So it's it's a diff completely different approach for me. I've been reading a biography of Ravi Shankar by a writer called Oliver Kresk. And I was amazed to discover that Shankar would completely refuse to compose music before he went into the studio. So he would improvise off an entire album throughout the session, which is the complete opposite to the way that you would work if you were, as you describe. Yes, well, that's what I did for the dance classes. I had no idea what I was going to do when I went in the room. In some ways, I would feel for me that it... it it would be getting in the way of really producing something. I try to uh, produce something completely different each day or each time, each exercise. And that for me, if I planned things, would have gotten in the way of producing something that was fresh, but very appropriate to mm. what they were doing. Are you ever tempted to work with dancers again have you ever been tempted to go back to the place i've done it, <laughs> done it? <laughs> i was working with a cohan collective which is robert with bob cohan again and uh we co-founded the cohan collective and i was there for the first four years and i played for some of his classes whenever he taught i would play for him mm. which would be at the beginning of the course and sometimes once or twice during the course but then that that was the end of it <laughs> yeah and it sounds like you're are you done now <laughs> i'm done now yes yeah. uh, fair enough
one thing that I really enjoyed in the last over lockdown actually was your show that you did for Radio Three, a history of Black classical music. A few of the composers, the twentieth century composers you talked about, I knew, but I had never come across people like Ignatius Sancho and John Blank. Nor that there, I had no idea that there are references to black musicians in Europe going back to the twelfth century. Oh, well, I didn't know that either. Was that a surprise for you too? Then? It was a revelation to me doing doing the research for it. So presumably, none of these composers were on the radar when you were young, or even in, until that recently. No, they right. weren't. They weren't. Otherwise, I would have. I might have felt I had some sort of role models as a youngster but there weren't any. Maybe just unpack for Tim a little bit about, you know, he's been um, quick enough to see that you're a middle-class Jamaican. What does it mean to be a middle-class Jamaican in terms of what music was available to you and what was, you know, how Eurocentric and all that kind of yes. stuff? Yes, well, Jamaica is a British colony and the culture was pretty sort of British-based. So whatever middle-class children in in the UK were experiencing, it was probably not that far removed. Mm. I mean, I suppose you had a dog called Prince Andrew. That That's a, a bit of a clue. <laughs> sure, do which you know I that? suppose hasn't aged very well as a, as a pet <laughs> name. <laughs> no, he, he long left this earth before there was any embarrassment. <laughs> So that's interesting. So there was very much a class was very apparent in your upbringing then. And did that therefore have an effect on the kinds of culture that young Jamaicans imbibed? Yes. Yes, it would. I mean, well, I think middle class people and children were exposed to everything. You did hear pop music as well. And it was there, it was part of Jamaica's sort of background, really. There was Jamaican pop music from very early on, from what I remember. Ska was the start of it. And it was always present, so much so that it became, if you, if you heard pop music in Jamaica, it was almost 99% bound to be Jamaican. So that was in the air the whole time. And there were also the Jamaican folk singers who I worked with also, was lucky enough to work with them. I played guitar for them mostly. I started off singing, but ended up playing guitar for them. So I learned a lot of the Jamaican folk songs. Mm. And there were popular ballads and a bit of jazz and everything, and also classical music all being played on the radio all the time. Everyone was exposed to everything. But presumably your idea at the time of a composer was very much white, dead man. Yes. That was in the syllabus, you know, every year. One or two that were still alive, but um, mostly it was the other. Yeah. That was just the way it was and has been for a long time, yes. Your history of black classical music, it came out... I think it was a week before the death of George Floyd and the ensuing uproar. And and did that feel 
strange timing. Strange timing in a way, yeah. I think the there were a couple of things that you said in it that really stuck with me. The first of which was culture should be engendered by environment, not forced by listeners' expectations of composers reaching into their DNA and plucking out a Negro spiritual here, a pentatonic trope there. I thought that was a really interesting statement. Firstly, because it made me wonder whether you whether you think that some black composers feel obliged to do this. Do you think that's the case? I couldn't say for sure, but I have my suspicions. Yeah. yeah. And the, the second thing that really struck me was you said to wave the racial flag as a priority only feeds divisions, which is probably the opposite of what some well-meaning but unconsciously <laughs> biased people would say in that, you know, you, why aren't you waving the flag? It's your duty even. It, well, it, it, let's just say I don't think that's the way to finally solve the problem of racism. Mm. I think it still underlines division. Yeah. If we start like that and make that stronger, then we'll never get to the place where everyone's looked at or treated equally. Yeah, and you and you said you don't want people to hear your identity in your music. But has that borne out or, ha- or do people do it anyway? Do, do you find that people choose to hear, for example, the, the Caribbean influences as a statement of your identity or... Do, even though that's not what you want. Some people, some people do, yes. Mm. For those, probably those same reasons that you mentioned, you know, being unconsciously biased, either that or insisting uh, that if you're black, that's what you should be doing. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I could just butt in here. It was quite interesting in those weeks just after the George Floyd um, awfulness that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of musicians uh, were trying to mount concerts and do wonderful things, you know, streaming concerts and everything. And um, there were definitely a strand of the inquiries that I was handling, because I'm often sort of trying my best to sort of manage Eleanor's um, affairs. And there was a, you know, a a big wave of interest. And much of that was, it was just great, but, but a small strand of it was, you know, the subtext was, I must have the music of a black woman composer. I'm doing a concert on Thursday and I've got to have something. And this piece looks like it might be good. And I would say, well, hang on a minute. You might want to take a look at it first and see if you really feel strongly about the piece, you know. So, yeah, that that, that was going on. Yes, there has been that. Yeah, again, that's a a symptom, I guess, of the unconscious bias that we talked about and people thinking that they're doing the right thing and yet actually they're part of the problem in a way. Yeah. Yes. yes, exactly. <laughs> there there was an interesting piece I read by, I don't know if you've come across the writer Alex Ross. He's American. He writes for the New Yorker magazine on classical music. And he was pointing out two ways of listening to music that had been identified by a musicologist. One was poetic, which reads a score in light of its creator's intentions and their cultural context, and aesthetic, which takes into account the perceptions of an audience in the moment. And Alex Ross posited that we live in a determinedly poetic age. We give great stress 
to what artists do and say, which kind of chimes with that idea that people, or as you say, Tom, people ringing you up and saying, I want this piece of music because it has this context or could be inferred in this particular way. And I think that's true. I think people are too focused too much on those aspects of music. I agree. Music hasn't lasted for centuries because the person was looking at it with from some political viewpoint or had certain um, moral ideas or whatever. It lasted because it's a really good piece of music. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And, I've, and Tom, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you so much for giving me your time. Really enjoyed meeting you too, Timmy. Yeah. <laughs> it's sometimes a bit of a scramble, but um, tangential is probably the word I would use my, my interviewing style. But, but uh, it seems to work for some people. <laughs> All right, I'm, I need to stop waffling. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure to speak to you, Timmy. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> Once again, a big thank you to Eleanor and Tom for speaking to me there. If you were wondering what that music was, it was four of the dances from Eleanor's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. We had Snow White's dance opening and then the Jockey's dance, then the Mirror's dance and finally the Celebration dance. All the right notes in all the wrong places. Can you guess what song it is? Go on then. hand over to the birthday department a couple of quick thank yous from me firstly to Eleanor and Tom I really enjoyed speaking to you guys and secondly to Ben and Emma for continuing to ply me with fantastic pickpocket examples a big thank you from me to Maya Cabeza for allowing us to use her wonderful performance of the Bieber in Analysis. A quick bonus thank you as well to Lawrence Panter, who has been recording all of the ABRSM piano pieces on the new syllabus that's coming out, helping anybody who has to teach advanced piano pupils to demonstrate the pieces, even if they can't necessarily sight-read them straight off the bat. And of course, a final thank you to Camille Sasson for bearing the brunt of this week's burns. Birthdays. On the 16th of October, we have a birthday for Erki Sventer, Estonian composer. Very nice. And on the 17th, it's Herbert Howells. Mm-hmm. 18th, the Lord of the Rings soundtrack composer Howard Shaw turns 74. And Wynton Marsalis turns 59. I bet he's upset that one doesn't rhyme. On the 20th, it's Charles Ives and Jelly Roll Morton. And the anniversary of the opening of the Sydney Opera House in 1973, which has the best sinks I've ever used in. Mm, I don't think I went inside. Okay. That's a shame. 
21st is the birthday of Dizzy Gillespie, Malcolm Arnold and Lyra Aubach. What a team. And on the 22nd, it's Franz Liszt. Why don't you celebrate by watching Listomania? Very strange film. Your daughter's deserted her husband, renounced her faith, and married Antichrist. Koshima, left hands, and married who? Satan himself. Richard Wagner.